Good morning, Village. Let's find our seats. It is good to worship together and study God's Word together. We want to jump back into Acts today, looking at Acts 25 and 26, a big section. I want to start with a scene on April 18th, 1521. Most of you probably weren't there. This is a joke. (laughs) But Martin Luther stood before the Pope and Emperor Charles V and many of the church leaders as he was confronted and asked to change his viewpoint, to recant his views on Scripture and to recant his views on salvation quite possibly to save his life. He did not know at that point what they would do. But that was the setting. Go back three and a half years before that. What started that setting was when he nailed his 95 theses, his 95 points of discussion, points of dispute with the church on the Wittenberg door. And what Martin Luther stood for was that the Bible should be taken at face value And that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that was contrary to what the church believed at the time. And as the emperor asked him to recant and change his view, he had a long speech, as he was prone to do. And at the end of that speech, he said these words. We won't say the whole speech, but just the the final words I want us to capture today. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. And he started a fire that changed the course of the church, corrected the course of the church to back to the truth of Scripture and back to understanding that salvation is by faith alone in Christ and not through works, not through anything we do, but by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died on the cross for our sins. And he stood firm. Why did he stand firm? It was because he had such a passion for this truth, such a conviction that this was truth, that he would not change. And this was the the center point of his life. It became the defining moment of his life. And this morning, as we come to the the book of Acts, we come to yet another defining moment for Paul. I don't know how many defining moments you can have, but yet another time where Paul has to stand and choose what he stands for. And this morning, it, it will ask the question, what do we stand for? What do we live for? What's the core of our belief, but what's the core of how we practice our belief? What is the central purpose of our lives And what is the central purpose of us as a church? So turn with me to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. As we look at at Paul's I can do no other moment. We'll be starting at verse 13. And just to remind ourselves where we are at, Paul is still in prison in Caesarea. He's been here for two years. The Jews have come a couple times from Jerusalem to try to convict him. And last week's text, they came again and tried to to convict him again because now Festus is governor. 
And at the end of it all, Festus was possibly going to send him to Jerusalem. Probably might be a better word. And Paul knew that that was a place where he could not get a fair trial and it could would most likely end his life. And so he appealed to Caesar. And he said, you know what? I'm a Roman citizen. I'm going to Rome. I'm, I'm, I'm escalating this case to Caesar. Now, Festus has a problem because Festus couldn't find anything wrong with him in Roman law. And that's the pattern here. But when you send someone to Caesar, to Rome, to the emperor there, that you had to send them with a report that stated their charges, that stated what was wrong. In fact, one of the, um, one of the, the commentaries said Roman law required such a report from Festus. After an appeal has been made, records must be provided by the one with whom the appeal has been filed to the person who will adjudicate the appeal. So, so get the dilemma here. He's sending Paul to, to the emperor, the most powerful man arguably on the planet of the time, and he has to send a report outlining the charges against Paul, and he still has no clue what the charges are against Paul. Because by Roman standards, there was nothing that made sense, nothing that, that stuck. And so the only charges he had heard were charges about some finer points of theology with Judaism, which the Romans couldn't care less about or could care less about, couldn't care less about. And because they were all about just keep the peace, don't riot, and we're good. Give us your taxes. And so Festus has a problem. Because to send Paul to the emperor without the charges or on frivolous charges is wasting the time of the emperor and makes Festus look bad. And we know of times where people were removed from power because they did something like that. So understand the dilemma? That's where we enter the scene today in Acts chapter 25, verse 13. And we're going to see today Paul's incredible example of what dedication to the gospel looks like, what a heart for the loss looks like as he again uses his situation to share boldly the gospel. As we go through really a longer text today, 25 and 26, we'll move through it pretty quickly. And um, mostly I want to let the text and the flow of the text speak for itself. And so we'll just follow along with Paul's argument, with his defense and the situation, and, and glean the truth out of it. But there's two things that I want us to look at today. For those of you that are believers... For those of you that have chosen to place your faith in, in Jesus Christ and follow him, I want us to look at this at Paul's example. What was the passion of his life? What was the central focus of his life? Where did he put his efforts? What did he stand firm on? And I want us to look at that example and learn from that example and glean from that example. At the same time, we can look at his methods and get some ideas for how do we share the gospel. How do we stay bold? But on the other side, if you're here this morning and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, first and foremost, I'm glad you're here. This is a great place to ask questions, great place to find out who Jesus is. But my prayer for you this morning is that Paul's message would touch your heart and that you would hear the claims that Paul makes, that he repeats that Jesus made, and that your life would be changed today because you considered those words. So that's really the two goals that that I have for this text today. And we'll just walk through it and see what the Holy Spirit says. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would work through your your word today. 
that you would illuminate the truth there as we listen to Paul's defense of the gospel. Lord, that you would touch our hearts and stir in us the same passion Paul had. Stir in us a a belief in you, a trust in you, and a hunger for the lost to know you. In your name, amen. So we start with verse 13 of chapter 25. And really, chapter 25, 13 through the end of the chapter, sets the situation. And so point number one is this is the situation. King Agrippa helps Festus figure out what charges to send to Rome with Paul. And so we come to verse 13. It says, Now when some days had passed, and and some days here, again, Festus does everything pretty quickly except send Paul to the emperor because he doesn't know what to say yet. And so so Paul's sitting there. Festus trying to figure this out, doesn't want to lose his job or his head or anything else. So now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now, again, we read this and it's just a bunch of names. It's sort of like, okay, someone came over and we had a nice day. But we have to understand some of the history here. Agrippa the king, this is Herod Agrippa II. Herod Agrippa II, he's the son of Herod Agrippa I, who died in chapter 12 by being eaten by worms when he accepted glory that should only be given to God. And, and he's in a long line of Herods. We've talked about this a little bit before. His great-grandfather was Herod the Great, who was, who was the king when Jesus was born. And so he's the king that tried to kill Jesus by killing all of the little boys in Bethlehem, in that area. So that's great-grandpa. Um, Herod Agrippa I is the one that died, I, I mentioned, because he took glory given to God. There's his great-uncle was Herod Antipas, who met Jesus during the trial when Pilate was passing him back and forth between Herod, that's his uncle. And, and so this is a, a long line of men who were Jewish, who ruled as king of the Jews, but had no idea how to follow God and had no clue who the Messiah was and no desire to follow him because they were mostly playing politics. Herod Agrippa here, and he's just going to be called Agrippa by Luke here which I think is very interesting. Um, he's granted some territories by Rome. Um, and so he's ruling mostly northeast Israel and a little bit beyond Israel. And that's the area he has. But he also had a, a, a authority over the temple and appointing the high priest. And so, that's, so, so he should know the Jewish charges. This is the right guy to figure out what to tell the emperor. Because he would understand Festus isn't a Jew. He still doesn't understand all the dynamics of what's going on. Bernice is not his wife here, but his younger sister. Bernice had been married, was married several times to different rulers, had several affairs with different rulers, later with Titus before he destroyed Jerusalem. And not the Titus of the Bible, but the, the, the Roman um, general. And... Um, here, she's coming off of a marriage that was made for um, political expediency and is back with her brother, and they sort of became, um, the, they ruled together. Lots of theories in history, lots of debate about what kind of relationship that was, but you can look that up on your own. Just know that this family was a sinful family, mired in sin and struggling. And so... Antipas here is is sort of a small king, a petty king. And he comes because he's getting in good with the Roman officials 
the Roman official sees a chance here to have someone else write the report to the emperor. So here we are, they're using each other, basically. We get to verse 14. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix. So they're talking shop, talking work a little bit. And Festus realizes that Grippa was king of the Jews and, and possibly could shed light on this. We move on to 15. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And Festus is going to, to reiterate and summarize what we already have studied. I understand them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. It's a really interesting sentence because he's saying, I thought they'd have some valid points. I thought they'd have a case and they brought no charge that I suspected they would. No insurrection, no proof of anything. 19, rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And so Festus, for all his issues, he comes to the right answer here. The issue was Jesus and his resurrection. Now, it, it, it probably was a little weird for him to be telling um, Herod, it's about a guy that this group thinks is dead and, and Paul thinks is alive. It, you would think that that would be provable in, 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 in our way of thinking, but that's the issue. This group of Jews didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead, was alive, and Paul is claiming he was. So verse 20, he goes on. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem, he being Paul, and, he, and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to, the, to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And the idea is, uh, think, think a parade, think pageantry. And they're just milking their position. And so this whole pageantry where they come in and the, the highest officials come in, they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And the, we're still setting the scene here. Verse 24, And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, a little bit of an exaggeration there, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. Finally, someone willing to say it. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable, that's, that's putting it mildly, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. 
And so we have again another circumstance, another situation that Paul finds himself in. And it's easy to look at these things and say, well, that's just how the cookie crumbles, or that's just a a random circumstance. But again, Paul sees this not as a random circumstance, but a God encounter, an opportunity. And Paul sees it for what it is. Because Paul never wasted an opportunity to share the good news of the gospel. He found whatever situation he was in and turned it to that. I love the quote, we are never the victim of circumstance. And that is so true. You are never the victim of circumstance. Every circumstance, good or bad, that you find yourself in is God-ordained as a possibility, an opportunity to bring Him glory and to share the gospel. And so when things happen in life that we don't understand and when difficulty happens in life, we, we don't just want to say, oh man, I am so unlucky. Or, man, I just get the worst, worst things happen to me. I don't know why it's always happening to me. No, we're never a victim of our circumstances. Those are always opportunities that God won't waste if we will partner with Him and participate in what He's doing. And so that's the setup. That's the setting. And we get to chapter 26, and we get to hear Paul and his defense yet again. And this will be the third time that he shares his his conversion testimony and his conversion story. But this is the heart of the passage, this chapter, and especially at the end of this, when we get to Paul's heart. Now, one of the things, and just sort of as an aside for studying the Bible, when we get to this chapter in Acts, it is really easy to zone out and say, heard this, read this, Why are you putting this in here again, Luke? Come on. Okay, I understand it happened and you're a historian. So so here's one of the things that as you're studying God's Word to think through, when you see something repeated, two things. The first is, that means the Holy Spirit believed it was important for us. That should be enough, right? (laughs) Holy Spirit believes it's important for us to hear again. Second thing, just, just in terms of literature, look for the differences in the story. Because usually the author will have a different point of view, a different thing that they're looking at. And in this case, we see Luke recording Paul's testimony. And it it really does a fast forward through the first part of the testimony, leaves out a lot of the details we've read earlier. And it gets to the part of Paul's purpose in life, his mission in life, and what God has called him to do. And when you see an author do that, you want to look at the difference. So here, the core of it is going to be when Paul says, this is my heart, this is what, Paul, what God has asked me to do. So that's where we're going to go with this and, and see. Verse 1, though, says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand, something that an orator would do, and made his defense. And so the trial begins. And now the king of the Jews will hear him. The Romans already have, but now the king of the Jews will. And like I said, this defense is going to be very similar to chapter 22. Paul's going to talk about his Jewish upbringing, his persecution of Christians, his conversion, and his calling, his commissioning. And and that week, we looked at just some elements of sharing our faith and, and the elements are all there again this time. Find some common ground, some things that you can, can um, jump into the conversation with. Talk about who you were before Jesus, how Jesus changed you, who you were after believing in Jesus, 
And then this adds bringing it to a decision point. Ask someone, do you believe? And so we're going to see all that today in, in Paul's speech. And so here, point number two, Paul starts by appealing to shared beliefs, God's promise of life after death. Paul starts by appealing to shared beliefs, God's promise of life after death. Paul's basically saying, I know the scriptures, you know the scriptures, I'm simply following what it says, what's the problem? So verse two, get into Paul speaking. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today um, of all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen, listen to me patiently. And you have the niceties that started what we've seen every defense so far and every accusation. You say some nice things about the person hearing you out. And Paul is basically saying, I'm glad it's you. You understand our customs. You should know what I'm talking about. And then he goes on to talk about his, his upbringing and, and Jewish upbringing. And he's building a, a common ground by saying, I was the same as you. We believe the same things. And, and really, this isn't so much about a defense to say he's innocent. Paul is just openly sharing the gospel. That, and so he's like, okay, here's my defense. By the way, here's the gospel. And so verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. He, he, he was from Tarsus, but he came to Jerusalem as a young, young boy and was trained there. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And if you had a phrase that sort of identifies this point, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. And so here he begins to, to bring in a foundation of the gospel saying, this is rooted in the Old Testament. This is what the prophets talked about. This is what you believe. And, and he's finding that common ground because he's going to try with, with Agrippa to say, you believe the prophets. This is what they said. They talked about Jesus. Why don't you believe Jesus? That argument makes sense? That's in a nutshell what, what Paul's doing here. And so he starts by saying, this is what we all believe. I, I'm on trial because I believe in God's promises. What's Herod supposed to say to that? Don't believe in God's promises? No, no. He, he, he's a Jew supposed to be fluent in the law and the prophets. And so Paul is saying, I, I believe in, in God's promises. That's why I'm on trial in verse 6. And then verse 7, he elaborates on that. This is what we all hope for. And, and our people have worshipped day and night hoping for this. And that hope is the resurrection of the dead. And we're going to see that in verse 8. But the, the, in Judaism, they believed, except for the Sadducees, they believed that there was a life after this, this one, that there was life after death, and that there would be a resurrection, and that their hope was that that would be the day of the Lord, and God would set up his king, kingship, and his kingdom, and all would be made right. And most of the Jews 
believed in that age to come, that God would make things right. And part of that was that there would be a a resurrection. And so Paul brings that up, and then he says in verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So he said, you all believe it. You say you believe the prophets. You're looking forward to this. Our worship practices are hoping that God will come back. I just had the nerve to say God actually did it in Jesus and the Messiah, and now you're mad at me? You believe this. And, and, and so he's, he's, he's really bringing home that they are, are, are upset about something contrary to their own belief. Okay, a couple sports analogies today. This one. Let's say that we had a baseball team called the, the Dangels. We don't want, not to be confused with the Angels or anything like that. The Dangels, and, and we believe the Dangels are going to win a World Series someday. And we all hope and believe that maybe again they will someday win the World Series. We're hoping every season starts new that the Dangels are going to win the World Series. And one October, November, you go away on vacation. And when you come back, I am so excited. I say, the Dangels won the World Series. And you look at me and you say, that's stupid. That's impossible. That's crazy. I would be like, what? We've been hoping for this. We've been, we've been excited at the beginning of every season. Why are you upset? And you're like, well, we actually knew it would never happen. Not the angels, the angels. <laughs> That's what's happening here. Paul is saying it happened. God is at work. He raised Jesus from the, the dead because he is the Messiah. And you won't believe it? And in verse 8 just, just culminates it with this idea, can't God do anything? How big is your God? So they're mad at me because I said God could raise someone from the dead. And if you're not willing to believe it, then you don't believe God can raise someone from the dead. Do you see Paul's argument here? I, I would have loved to be, been a fly on the wall in that room. Because he's just, he's just bringing it out. See, here's the thing for us. We believe that God, through Jesus, conquered death and sin and proved it in the resurrection. And on that we stand. We will not waver. And that was the defining point for Paul here. That was the defining point for Antipas, Herod. That was the defining point for all the Jews they would not accept that because they did not want to give their life to Jesus. They did not want the ramifications of where that belief would lead them. So we see Paul here starts by appealing to shared beliefs. And for us, if we're sharing the gospel with someone, maybe we use some of these same tactics. And it depends on the person because every person is different. You've got to ask a lot of questions be a good listener, hear where they're at. But a question is, is, do you believe there's life after this one? You know, what happens when you die? What do you believe? Now, some will, some will just believe the, the soul ends, life ends, and there's nothing after this. But many today will still say, well, well yeah, I believe there's life after this. I, I believe that, that 
And, and, and most that don't know Jesus or, and don't know God will say, well, if we're really good, maybe we have hope. Or if I've, if I've helped a number of people, some unfortunately would say, oh, if I've given enough to the church. And none of that gets us a relationship with God. None of that gets us to heaven. But that's a great starting point for a conversation. Because then you can lead into that our souls don't die. And the choices we make here decides the future destinies of our lives after death. You know, other common grounds that I've used sometimes, and this one I use a lot in living nativity wrap-ups, is um, by saying, hey, do you think this world's messed up? I have never had someone say, no, actually, I think this world's pretty, pretty perfect. And, and that, again, now we can talk about why is this world messed up? What do you think the answer is? And, and you, you engage in these conversations by starting with some common ground. Uh, I, creation is another one because you can say, look, you know, especially if they've been to the mountains or on vacation recently, it is so hard to deny that there's a designer. We, it takes so much faith and effort to deny that someone designed all creation. It's common sense to us. My kids growing up never looked at a car and said, wow, that accidentally happened well. And that's just a car, and this world is so much more complex than that. And so we can appeal to a designer and then start to talk about, well, what do we know about the designer? And, and what do you think a, a, a designer would do? And we can go there. You know, if you really get into it, it, it's so easy to start to prove evolution statistically impossible and, and scientifically impossible if you look at the actual facts and the actual evidence. And those become opening conversations that we can use to have gospel conversations. But we need to move on. <laughs> because we've got to get through this. 9 through 11. Paul then moves to how he also opposed Christ as they did. And so he's setting some common ground saying, I get where you're coming from. I was there. Because if he can show that he was there and that he's completely different now, the question has to be asked of what changed. What changed him? And so he starts, and point number three, and I worded this more in Paul's language, or first person, I did awful things against Jesus and didn't believe he was the living Messiah. And he's going to summarize them, but 9, nine through 11... I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I believe like you do. I thought opposing Jesus was right. Verse 10, And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And that could be one of two things. It could be he was on the Sanhedrin as a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he literally cast a vote. Uh, most think this is more figurative to say he approved, like holding the coats of the men stoning Stephen. I'm casting my vote that these guys needed to die. Verse 11, And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And verse 11 basically says he was pulling Christians out and saying, Deny Jesus or I'm going to kill you. Deny Jesus, or I'm going to persecute you. I'm going to torture you. And so he was trying to get Christians to deny Jesus. But they wouldn't. 
those that had a genuine belief. And so Paul here talks about what he was like before Christ. This is hard. Hard to see what he went through. But, but really, two things, to, two things are interesting to me out of this. The first is, Paul is probably the right person to argue with him because of his past. Let me explain that. When you have a favorable testimony in court from a hostile source, that testimony has a lot more credibility. And so here, Paul is saying, I was against Christ. I didn't just fall into Christianity. I was actively against them. I was killing Christians. I was persecuting them, trying to get them to say they didn't believe in Jesus Christ. And so he didn't blindly accept Christianity. Something had to have radically changed him, some powerful truth. For those of you that are, are, are believe in Christ, what convinced you? Think about that. What convinced you? Now, many of you I know accepted Christ at a very young age. And, and, and mom and dad convinced you or the fear of hell might have convinced you. But especially those of you that came to Christ as adults, what changed your mind? Think about that. That's part of your story. That's part of what people need to hear. Because the Holy Spirit drew you and moved you from darkness to light. And that is not an easy thing, but it is an amazing gift of God. Second thing I think about whenever I read Paul's background is a reminder that no one is beyond God's grace. No one is beyond God's reach. No one is beyond God's forgiveness. And if you are here today and you're thinking, I am not worthy of following Christ. I have done things here no one knows. God's grace is enough. His blood is enough. His payment is enough. And forgiveness can be yours. So that's Paul's third point. What he was before Christ. We get to the section where Paul is is saved. His conversion. And point number four. But Jesus sought me and opened my eyes that I might open the eyes of others. And in in how I've worded that point, you get the, the conversion But you start to get Luke's thrust here, Paul's thrust here, of why he was saved, what his purpose is, what his passion is. Jesus sought me and opened my eyes that I might open the eyes of others. Verse 12. In this connection, so in this state, trying to to go persecute Christians in Damascus, in this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, just sort of fun, that's a point that wasn't shared in his other tellings of his conversion. But he's saying at noon, it's bright because he's, he's making a point of the, the, the light of God opening his eyes and being able to shine to others. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The third time Paul has shared his conversion story. And the reason is, it's, it's a normal part of him sharing the gospel. Just like when we share the gospel with people, our story should be a normal part of that. How has God changed you? And so Paul here makes that, that part of his story. 
and, and that God's light came on him and God's light opened his eyes to the truth. And he gets to the voice. Why are you persecuting me? And this is Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I don't know if you, that's a proverb, but maybe hard for us. A goad is a, a really long um, rod, um, stick of some sort. But when I think of stick, I think little. This is thicker with more substance. That's um, filed to a point at the end. So if you think spear, but it's, it's more just the, the rod itself. And it was used to prod oxen. So if you're trying to get oxen to a certain place, you, you just prod them along. They don't like being poked, so they go. And the idea here is, is don't kick against the goads. If someone's poking you, don't throw your body on the rod. Or don't kick against the rod. It's going to hurt more. And the proverb was used of, you can't fight what God's doing in your life. You can kick against it. You can try, but it's going to hurt. Eventually, God wins. And so this is coming to the, the climax of the story. And he gets to verse 15 and says, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Keep in mind, at this point, Paul is still an unbeliever. He still thinks Jesus is dead and rotting in the tomb or, or a body stolen somewhere. He's convinced of that. That's why he's persecuting Christians, because of this heresy that Jesus is alive. What better way to dispel that than for Jesus to talk to him. It had to be a moment. Who are you? I am Jesus. I am alive. He is exalted. This is proof of the resurrection. It's a powerful way to know someone is alive. It's to talk to them. And so now we come to the climax of Paul's commissioning, his purpose. 16, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. And so we see in that verse, Paul's purpose, what he's called to is to be a servant and a witness. A servant of the Lord, to know the Lord, to be part of the Lord's work. A witness of everything God had already done in his life and will do. I love that. It's promised that God's going to do more in his life. And verse 17 expands on that. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Paul, you're going to testify about me, what I've done, what I will do. I'm going to deliver you. That's going to be part of your story. This is your purpose in life. Village, that's our calling too. Servants and witnesses. Servants of the Lord. Witnesses to what He's done. In First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, Paul writes to that church and says, we are ambassadors as God making His appeal through us. Witnesses and servants. That is why we are here. Verse 18 gives the, the result to open their eyes, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And you see that 
that Paul here is, is describing, okay, my purpose is to be a witness, but to open people's eyes so they will come to faith in Christ Jesus. And, and he outlines a choice here that there are two different ways of living. And this is why it is so important, why, why sharing the gospel with the lost must be our passion as believers. is because there's two different ways of living, darkness and light. And then he, he correlates that with the power of Satan and God. And so we have uh, the purpose of showing people light that are living in darkness, that are living under the rule of Satan before Christ. And to show them a way where they can experience the light of God. To move from the power of Satan to the power of God. And then the last part of that verse 18, he gives the advantages of the second. The advantages of changing allegiances. The advantages of following Christ. And it's forgiveness and assurance of a place. Verse 18, the end of it. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And ultimately that place is eternal life with Jesus Christ. There is life after death, and we are resurrected into relationship with God. That is the place we are promised. If we follow the light, if we follow God's kingdom, if, as it says, we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Don't let grace get old in your eyes. Don't let it get commonplace. Our faith in Jesus Christ and the the result of forgiveness of sins and assurance of a future with Christ, that's amazing. That is incredible. And that should be our passion for others to know that. And so we get to verse 5 or point 5. And we see Paul's passion. And so I can do no other than to urge others to turn to God. And he's standing before Herod on trial again. Life might hang in the balance again. And he's like, here I stand. I will not stop sharing the gospel. Verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. A little bit of humor there. Like, do you want me to disobey God? I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And so he's describing that his passion, his his goal in life now, is to encourage others to make a U-turn, turn to God, believe in Him, and act on that belief. So we get to 21. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. This is it. They they tried to kill me because I'm trying to obey God. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And he gives a, a couple more proofs here in verse 22. I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would said would come to pass. And he says, one of the proofs here is that God has got me this far. I'm not dead yet. Because God continues to save his life and bring him to this point. And so he's testifying, which, which, by the way, 
on the road to Damascus, he was told that's what he would testify to, that God would deliver him. God's delivered me. That's one of the proofs. But then you see his heart. I'm going to testify to small and great, to the most humble and to kings, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. This is consistent with the Old Testament. This is, it's been the same God. That Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim, proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so in, in that verse, in verse 23, he actually references Isaiah. He references, he references Psalm 22. He is bringing prophecies in and they would have been familiar with these things. In Isaiah 53, we we sang part of it this morning. He was despised and rejected by men. This is a prophecy that they believed was about their Messiah, their conquering king, but they didn't like this chapter because it wasn't so conquering. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. Hard to miss that allusion to the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Because he took our punishment on himself. There's a lot more you can read in Isaiah 53. Psalm 22, even think of the prophecies there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Moving on in Psalm 22, for dogs encompass me, a company of evil doers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, and we know from the accounts Jesus' bones were never broken. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Guys, this was written, one written 600 years before the events happened, the other a couple hundred years further back, and it happened. And so Paul is saying, oh, Antipas and everyone there, This was all declared by the prophets and it happened in Jesus Christ and you missed it. But it's amazing that it happened. I'm running out of time. Let me give you one other sports analogy, okay? To show you how amazing this is and and prophecy is. If I say Cincinnati is going to beat the Chiefs today, those of you that are football fans, and let's say Cincinnati beat the Chiefs today, are you impressed? No, right? 50-50 chance. And, and probably looking at the stats, maybe a little more than that, an educated guess. But if I say this, Cincinnati will beat the Chiefs by 10, and Philadelphia will win by 14, and Cincinnati will win the Super Bowl by 3, if all that happens, more impressive? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're like, okay, something's going on there. We can make some money on this. That's impressive. But if I say all of that and then it's going to be 53 degrees for the Philly game and Mahomes is going to get injured with three minutes, 12 seconds left in the third and in the Super Bowl, Philly will have four first downs and three field goals and Cincy will have 13 field first downs and win. Now, is that more impressive? 
if all that happens, now we're really going to make some money. (laughs) That's nothing compared to how many prophecies we have in the Old Testament that all came true through Jesus Christ. That's nothing. And you would be amazed if that happened. I'm a little scared that it might not. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you would be amazed that it happened. And so this is what Paul is doing. What I just did is what Paul is doing by referencing the prophets, by referencing the law, by saying all this was predicted and it happened. And it's a brilliant move. Just in two more minutes, let me read the last section. Because Paul, in, in verses 24 through the end, brings it to a decision point. And so the sixth point there is, this is the do you believe decision point. Do you believe decision point? And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're nuts. Or actually it says, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. And so we get the Festus excuse, I'm too smart to believe that absurdity. Someone rose from the dead, and, and all these prophecies actually point to it. He doesn't know the prophecies. It's really, it's really quite humorous. But he thinks he's too smart to believe. Paul says, no, these are true. This is rational. And he points to Agrippa. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. The life of Jesus wasn't in a corner. It was news. Everyone knew what was going on. What he's teaching isn't in a corner. It's not hidden. The prophecies aren't hidden. And then he turns, I picture, this is my imagination, him looking at King Agrippa in the eye. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the prophets. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Me? And Paul said, and this is where we get his heart, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So the Festus excuse is I'm too, too smart to believe that absurdity because the gospel is foolishness to those that don't believe. The Agrippa excuse is, no, no, you're going to tell me? It's pride. I'm better than this. I'm bigger than this. You're not going to convince me in a short time. And you? And both of those men walked away from the gospel without knowing Christ. And both of those men are in eternal judgment because of that. Because they heard and they knew and they were brought to a decision point and asked, do you believe? And they refused. And that is sobering. That is sobering. And Paul boldly wants all to come to Jesus and says, I'll take it. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll preach till I'm blue in the face. I want you to come to Christ. And it should bring to mind when, when Paul was saying, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And the conclusion is sad to me. 
Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, no, you were going to send him to Jerusalem and he was going to die, but okay. It's sad to me because in the conclusion, Agrippa sees Paul as innocent and misses the whole point of the gospel. This was just an exercise in in what his charges should be. And he missed the life-changing possibility if he would give his life to Jesus. And so Paul's time at Caesarea draws to a close. They have heard the gospel. The Roman governors, the king of the Jews, and they have had an opportunity and they took a pass. Those of you that are believers, do you have that longing that Paul had for the lost? Do you have a life centered on making disciples? Are you willing to sacrifice your schedule, your time, your energies for the sake of the gospel that others can hear? To be witnesses? I pray we are. I pray that that unquenchable gospel is something that God is putting on our hearts to share. But those that haven't made the decision yet, will you believe today? Will you believe that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins? And that he rose again three days later? I urge you to make today the most important day of your life and make that decision. From darkness to light, from the realm of Satan to the realm of God. Don't take Festus' excuse. Don't think it's absurd. Find out more about it. Don't take Agrippa's excuse and say, ah, it's too quick. I'm too good for this anyway. But come to Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us your heart for the lost that Paul shows us. And and Lord, build that in us to where we know that there are no mortals walking around. But every person we see has a soul. Every person we see has a destiny of either heaven or hell. Being with you or separated from you. Lord, challenge us to be bold for you. Get us out of our comfort zones. Get us sharing the word. Help us to look for gospel conversations. Help us to be your ambassadors and make a difference for you, God. In your name.